Hercules postulate four is super weird. Here's what it says. All right angles are equal. Huh? What kind of postulate is that? 90 degrees equals 90 degrees? A right angle is equal to itself? Why would you need to state that as an axiom? If you do need to state it as an axiom, then why only right angles? Why wouldn't you need other axioms stating that various things are equal to themselves, like 10 degrees equals 10 degrees, or 1 plus 1 equals 2? So why don't we need axioms like those? What's so special about right angles? Why do right angles get to be singled out like that in their very own postulate, postulate 4 of Euclid's elements? Seems crazy, but Euclid knew exactly what he was doing, in fact. His postulate only appears crazy and weird. There is a way to make sense of it. We have to reconstruct the original context and the intent of the postulate, what, what kind of problem or issue it was meant to address. In my opinion, Euclid included this postulate in order to rule out cone points. I will explain what I mean by this, the vertex of a cone, like an ice cream cone or something, you know, that, that we're talking about flat pieces of paper and not, not cones. That's, that's what are going to be my thesis uh, regarding how to explain Euclid's postulate. I will explain that in detail, but f f let's first note the, uh, the historical methodology involved in addressing the, the question in this way. First of all, there is nothing in Euclid's own text, or in fact anything anywhere in, in ancient sources, that actually say that this is what the postulate was about, the, the, the idea of the cone point. The cone point interpretation is a hypothetical reconstruction by historians. It's formulated thousands of years after Euclid. But still, though, the reconstruction is just so convincing. It just has to be right. If it's right, everything fits. Everything makes sense. If it's not right, you know, then we can't explain the postulate. We just have to assume that Euclid, what, that he just didn't think things through or that carefully. He just put the postulate down on a kind of whim or whatever. Doesn't really mean anything. That's very disappointing if we, if we would have to kind of write off the postulate uh, like that. It's much more satisfying to be able to give meaning to it. And the fact that you can give meaning to even the weirdest parts of Euclid's elements is an indicator of the kind of thing that sets a great text apart from a mediocre one. You know, great texts in intellectual history like Euclid's text, they reward reflection. If something seems weird, it's because you haven't understood it yet. You know, there's a reason behind every step of the text. You can think of it this way. The text is like the tip of an iceberg, you know. It is built on a huge body of supporting thought. This is why the text rewards reflection. The text is not just whatever popped into Euclid's heads and he just wrote it down, you know, uh, random uh, thoughts. Rather, Euclid's element is the fruit of an intellectual culture where these ideas have been scrutinized, criticized, forwards and backwards and inside and out. That's how you should read great texts like Euclid's text. These are the kinds of texts that every time you dig into even the weirdest parts, you realize that, ha, huh, that's actually a good point. The more you probe the text, the more compelling it becomes. It's the mark of a great text that when you scrutinize an apparent weakness, it turns out to be a strength. Euclid's right-angle postulate is an example of this kind of phenomena. 
It looks silly and weird at first sight, but when we think about it, it opens our eyes to a new and unexpected perspectives and insights. Okay, so let's see. All right angles are equal. What's the deal with that? First of all, what does right angle mean? Euclid defines a right angle in definition 10. It goes like this. Draw a line. Consider the space on one side of the line. Cut that space in half with another line. That's a right angle. A right angle is half the space on one side of a line. I mean straight line, of course. So what does all right angles are equal mean then it means suppose you have made a bunch of right angles that is to say you have drawn various lines and then you have cut the space on one side of those lines in half so you have a piece of paper and it's full of what looks like a bunch of copies of the uh, the letter a capital t you know that's uh, your first you have a line and then you cut it in half it's like a t shape so uh, there are a bunch of T's uh, scattered across the paper there, uh, random angles and uh, positions. All right angles are equal means if you cut out one of those T's and you put it on top of one of the other ones, then it fits. All these different uh, T's align perfectly with each other as far as angles are concerned. So the right angle postulate is really a kind of homogeneity postulate. It effectively says that no part of the paper is different than any other. The space on the side of a line is the same everywhere. Now, a cone is an example of a surface where this is not the case, like an ice cream cone. The cone is non-homogeneous. It has an exceptional point. The cone point, the apex of the cone, is different from other points. Euclid's postulate is false on a cone. A right angle at the cone point is smaller than a right angle elsewhere on the cone. You can see this if you think about how a cone is made. You can make a cone like this. Start with a circular piece of paper and then you cut out a wedge from it like a pizza slice and then you grab the two sides of the cut and you pull them together. Okay, that makes a cone now. So now think about the amount of space around each point. Most points are surrounded by the same amount of space as they were originally on the paper we started with. 360 degrees worth of space, so to speak. The cone point is different. It's surrounded by less space or fewer degrees than it was before. The pizza wedge that you cut out, it took away some of the angle sum around this point, the cone point, the apex point in the middle. And not so for any other point, though. Even the points along the uh, sides of the cut, they're still normal points. They lost 180 degrees when you took out the, the pizza slice wedge, but then you pasted the, another 180 degrees right back in again when you pulled the, the cut together. So the, those pieces are back to normal. So only the cone point is different. It lost some of its angles and it never got it back. So the right angle postulate is false on the cone because right angles are smaller at the cone point and this is because right angles are defined in terms of uh, cutting the space on the side of a, a line in half. And therefore, if there's less space around some point compared to other, then also right angles there will be smaller as well. I believe this is what Euclid had in mind when he wrote his uh, postulate, postulate 4, about right angles. You can't prove that this is what Euclid meant, but it's the most satisfying explanation. So here's a fun little uh, cultural sidelight uh, related to this. 
the Declaration of Independence of the United States, starts in a kind of Euclidean manner. Here's what it says. We hold these truths to be self-evident. And then it goes on to list a number of truths. And the first of those truths is that all men are created equal. So the Declaration of Independence it has self-evident axioms, just like Euclid, and they even sound very similar to the truths stated in the Declaration of Independence and those by Euclid, right? All right angles are equal, says Euclid, and the Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal. Well, there you go, a very close correspondence. So no coincidence, the founding fathers of the United States, they were obsessed with antiquity. They used the ancient world as a model all the time. As a model for the political system, of course, uh, the Senate, for instance, that's just straight up copied from Rome and so on with many other things. Uh, Euclid was part of that package as well. It's a very conscious revival of ancient enlightenment and democratic ideals. So the founding fathers of the United States, they called their axioms self-evident. And of course, many people have interpreted Euclid that way as well. The axioms are surely they're self-evident. You don't have to prove the postulates because they're immediately obvious. You can draw a line from any point to any point. Yes, of course you can. It's too simple to even prove, but it's impossible to doubt. No, that's one way to think about Euclid's postulates, a common way to think about them. Obvious truths, self-evident truths, just as the Declaration of Independence says. However, you could argue that it's more complex than that. It, it's even, in fact, Euclid's very word postulate suggests that uh, that's not exactly what he had in mind, this idea about self-evidence. Uh, the term postulate doesn't suggest that they are self-evident or impossible to doubt. Rather, uh, to postulate, it is more of a demand or a request. Uh, the term doesn't seem to take assent for granted, but rather the opposite, actually. It seems to imply that some people might indeed oppose those statements, no matter how obvious they might seem. How could anybody deny that you can draw a line from any point to any point? In fact, some people in ancient Greece did deny this, and they were not crazy. They had some very compelling reasons. A useful book on this is The Beginnings of Greek Mathematics by Arpad Shabo. I'll summarize it for you. It's a fun story. So, according to Shabo, uh, mathematics grew out of the more ancient subject of dialectic, that is to say, a philosophical debate. So, we had discussed before the argumentative Greeks, they love debating. Two philosophers passionately disagreeing, trying to poke holes in each other's argument in this lively dis disputation before an audience. That was their idea of a good time back in Greek uh, days. Instead of dinner and a movie, you go to a philosophy debate. So, that's dialectic. You know, a debate between two warring sides. Terms such as axiom postulate and many other mathematical terms seem to have originated in this context. These terms were imported into mathematics from dialectic. Today, only their mathematical meaning survives in many cases. And therefore, to us, these terms have rather different connotations than they did for the ancient Greeks. And that's how the idea that... Uh, axioms or postulates are supposed to be self-evident, it has become associated with these terms, even though that was not the original intent or meaning, most likely. So the terms axiom and postulate, they originally meant something like a concession, which the participants in a discussion have agreed to make. We know that the term postulate came from dialectic, where it was used to denote a demand about which the second partner in a dialogue had reservations. 
So let's see whether there is any connection between this early meaning of the word and Euclid's postulates. At first glance, postulates 1 through 3, they appear to be such simple, self-evident and easily fulfilled demands that one is tempted to disregard the literal meaning of the name. But no, Euclid's postulates arguably rely on motion, to draw a straight line from any point to any point. How do you do that? You put the ruler down and you trace the line with a pen. The pen is moving. You put it at one point and you move it to the second point. And it's the same with circles. You draw them with a compass. It's also a moving instrument. It's quite possible to deny that such things can be done. In fact, you may have heard about the famous paradoxes of Zeno, which purport to prove that motion is impossible. One of his arguments goes like this. Suppose I have to walk from A to B. Before I can walk all the way to B, I first have to walk half the way to B. Then, when I'm at the halfway point, before I can get to B, I have to walk half of what's left, and so on. Whatever distance is left, I always first have to go half of it. But this process never ends. There's always another half to go. So to go from A to B, you have to do an infinite number of things, so to speak. You can think of it this way. When I have gone half the way from A to B, I say 1. Then when I have gone half again of what's left, I say 2. And then when I've gone half of what's left after that, I say 3, and so on. This implies that if in fact I can go all the way from A to B, I will have shouted out all the numbers that exist. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, all of them. So to say that you can go from A to B is the same thing, is equivalent to saying that you can count through all the numbers in finite time. Of course you can't. Nobody has ever counted through all the numbers. So therefore, well, you can't move either then. Motion is impossible. Motion must be an illusion. We only think that we move. This is feeble sensory knowledge, so-called knowledge, pseudo-knowledge actually. We discussed before how the extreme rationalistic tendency of Greek philosophy led them to this kind of uh, emphasis of reliance on pure deductive reason at the expense of all other forms of knowledge. Zeno's paradox is a prime example of precisely this attitude. The senses say that we can move, but deductive reason says that we cannot. So the Greeks side with reason then, or well, Zeno did anyway. So we discussed before how the stage debate format incentivized philosophers to pick the side of reason in such cases, no matter how extreme and outrageous the conclusion may be. All is water, all is fire. The crazier the better, you know. Uh, proofs of radically unexpected conclusions is perfect for a stage debate setting. Zeno's argument, this is a great way to dazzle an audience and to show how clever you are. Being reasonable arguing that one can walk from A to B. That's boring. Who wants to hear that? You won't become a blockbuster debate star by arguing for the obvious. You gotta have your own signature absurdities that you claim to prove. That's how you really stand out as a dialectic superstar. Sino had a second form of his argument that's equally amusing. Let's study that. Uh, let me quote how Simplicius uh, describes it. Simply, well, I mean, we don't have Sino's original works, uh, unfortunately, they are lost, but here's a later paraphrase by Simplicius. It goes as follows. 
The argument is called the Achilles, because of the introduction in it of Achilles, who, the argument says, cannot possibly overtake the tortoise he is pursuing. For the overtaker must, before he overtakes the pursued, first come to the point from which the pursued started. But during the time taken by the pursuer to reach this point, the pursued always advances a certain distance, even if this distance is less than that covered by the pursuer, because the pursued is the slower of the two, yet nonetheless it does advance, for it is not at rest. And again, during the time which the pursuer takes to cleaver this distance which the pursued had advanced, the pursued again covers a certain distance. And so, during every period of time in which the pursuer is covering the distance which the pursued has already advanced, the pursuit advances a yet further distance. For even though this distance decreases at each step, yet, since the pursuit is also definitely in motion, it does advance some positive distance. And so we arrive at the conclusion that not only will Hector not be overcome by Achilles, but not even the tortoise. So this is the end of the quote, and that's another way to prove that motion is impossible. Those who believe in motion, they believe that Achilles can outrun a tortoise, but that contradicts reason as we have just proved. Therefore, those who believe in motion must be wrong. And why did Sino prove the same thing in two ways? Maybe he was just like, hey guys, I thought of another funny one. It has a tortoise in it. Oh, I'm sure you'll get a kick out of this. You know? Maybe, uh, though, there is something more substantial to it than that. Sino's uh, two forms of the argument, perhaps they differ in, uh, also in some substantial way, and not only in terms of the imagery. I do believe that uh, that is the case, that there are subtly differences in the assumptions made in these two arguments. You might say that uh, the Achilles argument assumes the possibility of motion and derives a contradiction. It, so to speak, plays along with those who believe in motion for a bit, only to then trap them in a paradox. The other argument, the dichotomy argument, the half-half-half argument, it doesn't really need to even presuppose motion at all. It derives the impossibility of motion more from the uh, the nature of length, or it has more to do with the infinite divisibility of the continuum than with motion as such. So in that respect, the dichotomy argument is more pure, as it were, because it doesn't need to use motion to refute motion. On the other hand, it is less pure in another respect, because the dichotomy argument assumes metricity, you might say. That is to say, uh, an absolute notion of distance. For the argument to work, it must be possible to talk about the half of something. But half, the notion of half, involves quantification. You need to put a number on the full length before you can know what half of the length means. So you can imagine how Sino's opponents might reply, ah, well, actually, your argument doesn't disprove my beliefs like you claim, because although I believe in motion, I do not believe in metricity. That is to say, I do not believe that numerical lengths can be assigned objectively to the paths between points. And therefore, the whole business about halves doesn't work, and therefore you haven't really disproved motion at all. So if Sino's opponents try to wiggle their way out from under the dichotomy argument using this kind of defense, then Sino could hit them with the Achilles argument. The Achilles story doesn't involve assigning numerical lengths to anything. It's purely about 
relative positions. The tortoise is in front of Achilles. The argument doesn't say by how much. The argument doesn't need the notion of being in front to be quantifiable. It needs only relative positions. So in that sense, the Achilles argument is the purer argument of the two. So, well, that's all fun to think about. Let's get back to our original purpose, though. I brought up Zeno's paradoxes because they're related to the issue of whether Euclid's postulates are obvious or not. If we bear in mind Zeno's paradoxes, it's easy to understand why Euclid's first three postulates had to be laid down. They really are demands and not agreements, for they postulate motion, like, for example, the motion of a pen that's drawing a circle. And anybody who adhered consistently to Zeno's teaching could not therefore accept statements of this kind as the basis for further discussion. So when Euclid is presenting his postulates, he doesn't seem to be saying, surely you all agree with these statements, they are clear, even without a proof. Instead, Euclid seems to mean by postulate, these are assumptions that must be accepted for the sake of argument if we are to do geometry at all. If you don't like them, well, no, we just have to agree to disagree, so to speak. And the same goes for Euclid's common notions. Our text of Euclid has a separate heading called common notions. That, however, it was not a well-entrenched term. Those principles clearly bore the name axioma in pre-Euclidean times. And the, the noun axioma, axiom, when used as a dialectical term, originally meant precisely the same demand or request just as a postulate. So, indeed... The common notions could be doubted as well, just as the postulates could be doubted. They are assertions which are justified by practical experience, and in some cases directly by sense perception. For example, one of the common notions state that things which coincide with one another are equal to one another. Indeed, it can literally be seen that plane figures which coincide are actually equal, hence this axiom is verified by sensory experience. And therefore, the common notions could not have been accepted by those who require that all knowledge be obtained by purely intellectual means without appealing to the senses. And there were plenty of people like that, just as Zeno's argument implies. It's an extreme trust in purely intellectual reasoning, even when that goes flatly against even the most basic and immediate experience, such as the existence of the phenomenon of motion. So this is why these principles, the common notions, were originally called demands, axiomata, because they were the other party in a dialectical debate had reservations about accepting them as a basis for further inquiry. In other words, the, the acceptance of those principles could only be demanded. They would not be automatic, uh, that everybody assented to those terms, but rather it was a demand. People... Uh, would not have agreed that these things were self-evident. That's why they had to be demanded or postulated. That's precisely the meaning of that term. There's yet another way to criticize Euclid's principle that things which coincide with one another are equal to one another. Not only does it rely on sense evidence, it's also arguably conceptually incoherent altogether. If two things coincide and are equal, doesn't that mean that they are actually one thing? Does it even make sense to speak of two things unless they can be distinguished from one another? So from that point of view, you can say that Euclid's common notion, far from being undoubtable, is actually downright 
logically incoherent. So we see that there are various ways in which Euclid's axioms can be questioned. The Greeks loved to quarrel. Mathematics was born in this kind of climate. Everybody criticizing everything, trying to poke holes in each other's views. So that's why Euclid's text starts with demands. Many later readers, they were happy to accept these things as self-evident, but the ancient Greek geometers, they could not have expected to get away with that, with an audience that was so generous with assent. They knew that everybody would uh, come at them for all, uh, try to challenge everything they said. So this is why the terminology, postulate, axiom, points to that precisely that uh, context. The meaning of the terms then have morphed over time. In very early days, mathematics lived within a dialectical tradition. It was a subordinate part of the dialectical tradition. Later, mathematics took on a life of its own. In fact, it soon outlived the dialectic tradition. So then the essentials of the old dialectic context were no longer well understood. So the ancient term, axioma and so on, acquired new meaning. Since they have always been used to refer to a group of principles which, from the viewpoint of common sense, were evidently valid, the term axioma now came to denote those statements whose truth was accepted as a matter of course. So this, then, that's why you have that American phrase, we hold these truths to be self-evident. It is perhaps not then as Euclidean as Jefferson and those guys thought. Let me tell you another interesting aspect of Euclid's postulates. The first three postulates, okay, they basically state that lines and circles can be drawn, that is to say, lines and circles can be taken to exist, is a primitive assumption of geometry. Uh, lines and circles are, so to speak, the Adam and Eve of geometry. In the beginning, there were only these two, the male and female generative principles. You couldn't get very far with just one of them, but together they combine and they make rich offsprings. They eventually populate the entire Euclidean universe. Everything that ever happens in Euclid's world comes from these two parents, the line and the circle. The, the line and the circle are also embodied in physical tools, of course, the ruler and the compass. To what extent is that important? Is the physical realizability important to the credibility of these postulates? Or is Euclid merely talking about lines and circles in the abstract and it's just a coincidence that they correspond to physical tools. There is no simple answer to this question. Euclid's text is ambiguous. You can read it either way, whether it has to do with ruler and compass or not at all. Insofar as we can say anything about what Euclid meant in this regard, we must infer that conclusions from technical material later in the text. Euclid never tells us, you know, here's my philosophy, let me tell you what I... He never says that. We can only read his proofs and we can ask ourselves what implicit assumptions appear to be made and what implicit philosophy might have guided the particular choices Euclid makes in his technical arguments. Already Proposition 2 is very interesting in this regard. Euclid shows in Proposition 2 how to transfer a length from one position to another using only his postulate about line and circle or ruler and compass. So in other words... Somebody has drawn a line segment on a piece of paper, and now you want to draw an equally long line segment somewhere else on the paper. Euclid accomplishes this by a very elaborate construction. It involves drawing several circles and an equilateral triangle, 
is very elegantly, indeed, this leads exactly to what you need, that the given segment has been reproduced in a new position with exact mathematical precision. You can prove everything, you know, the equilateral triangle, or the radii of the circle are equal, as a, uh, all kinds of logical steps showing that this is correct. It's all very neat. It's also very weird, isn't it? Seems totally out of touch with reality. If a craftsman or an engineer or an architect would need to transfer a length, surely they would not use Euclid's absolutely baroque procedure, which involves drawing these several circles and equilateral triangles and all kinds of... It's a... That's crazy. First of all, you might say, just use a ruler. Measure the given length. It's so and so many centimeters. Put the ruler where you want the length to go and you mark off the same number of centimeters over there. Done. There's no need for drawing a bunch of circles and God knows what else like Euclid does. So why doesn't Euclid accept this and save himself all the, the trouble of Proposition 2? Actually, Euclid's approach is not so crazy. In a way, you might say it's a mistake to think that length lives in the ruler. Actually, out of the two parents, the ruler and compass, length comes from the DNA of the compass, not from the ruler. We are so used to working with rulers, measuring things with rulers is the prototypical manifestation of length. But think about it. Where do rulers come from? How do you make a ruler? How do you put the centimeter marks on a ruler? You do it with a compass. You set the compass to a fixed opening and you mark off the size of that opening repeatedly along the ruler. Can you feel it? You start with a blank ruler. There's a straight piece of wood. And you take your compass and you make it, so to speak, walk along the edge of the ruler. Left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. The places where the compass stepped, so to speak, becomes the marks of the ruler. So when you use a ruler to measure things, you're really relying on the compass. Length is born from the compass. So this suggests that uh, Euclid is onto something when he involves circles in his proofs of Proposition 2. Still, though, that doesn't really explain why it has to be all that complicated as Proposition 2 is. In fact, why couldn't you just use a compass to solve the problem directly? You just open the compass to the length you want to move, you lift the compass and you put it back down wherever you want the length to go. So the length you wanted in the new position where you wanted it is directly manifested in the form of the distance between the two legs of the compass. Piece of cake. There's nothing to it. You can move length directly with the compass without any hassle. So Euclid acts as if this is not possible. One might say that Euclid behaves as if his compass is collapsible. The, the compass stays at a fixed opening while drawing a particular circle, but as soon as it's lifted from the paper, it collapses or closes up so that the opening to which it was set is lost and it cannot be used elsewhere in some other position. Of course, there are no collapsible compasses. It's not a real thing. So you might say, aha, this proves that Euclid is in fact talking about lines and circles abstractly, maybe in the manner of Plato and his world of ideas. From that point of view, Euclid's proof is not problematic. It's a dazzling intellectual construction. Great stuff. Hopelessly impractical to be sure. Well, that's just all the better, of course, as far as Plato is concerned. Meanwhile, if you want to say that Euclid's postures correspond to actual ruler and compasses, well, then you have to bend over backwards and make up stories about collapsible compasses which don't exist in order to make uh, that uh, to fit the structure of Proposition 2 and the proof of Proposition 2. 
So it seems we have a clear winner then. Only the abstract, non-physical reading of Euclid makes sense from that point of view. But I'm not so sure. Maybe abstract versus physical is the wrong lens to use here to try to understand Proposition 2. We can also make sense of Euclid's peculiar proof from a different point of view that is independent of the issue of physical versus abstract. And this point of view is assumption minimalism. Euclid masterfully reveals the minimum assumptions necessary for geometry. You remember, reduce, reduce, reduce. That seems to be Euclid's mantra. This is the philosophy of reading backwards that we discussed before. If you can avoid an assumption, then you should avoid that assumption. This kind of minimalism or purism, it doesn't depend on whether geometry is physical or abstract. Either way, if something can be proved rather than assumed, then that's regarded as a win. This kind of re reduction is about exploring and clarifying the ultimate foundations of geometry, the bedrock source of geometrical knowledge. It's applicable regardless of whether geometry is physical or abstract. So this perspective of minimalism demands that we do not allow lengths to be merely transferred directly by the compass, even if we do think that physical compasses are somehow important to geometry. We should still pursue this reduction. It is our duty to always reduce. Just as a chemist reduces molecules to atoms, of course, molecules are great. The best level at which to explain many things is molecules and not atoms. But since they can be reduced, they must be reduced. It's our scientific duty to run the reduction as far as it goes. Of course, we can still retain the explanatory power of molecules. The reduction to atoms is just a, a supplement or another way to look at it. Maybe it's that way as well in Euclid. Maybe the physical compass should be seen as the operational tool throughout the elements, just as molecules are the right level of analysis for many chemical phenomena. Even so, it still makes sense to show up front how this idea of the compass could in principle be reduced even further to more basic building blocks. We might say that uh, Euclid does precisely that in Proposition 2. The fact that you can do away with the assumption that compass can transfer length, that is an interesting foundational insight. Since Euclid can prove this, he does prove this. It doesn't imply, though, that he's opposed to the idea of a non-collapsible compass. One could simply delete Proposition 2 from the elements, and all the rest of the elements would still stand verbatim as a treatise about constructions with non-collapsible compasses. Proposition 2 can be viewed as an optional exercise, in foundational minimalism within a paradigm that is otherwise fully based on the physical compasses. So rather than as evidence of conceptions uh, fundamentally at odds with the physical point of view, it can be seen as just a, a way to uh, basically do physical geometry with physical compasses, but then with this extra step of, by the way, I could even uh, limit the assumptions that I make down to an even smaller set of assumptions. So Analogous situations occur in modern mathematics all the time. For instance, open any textbook on abstract algebra, turn to the definition of a group. The definition of a group says that any group has an identity element. Anything multiplied by the identity stays the same. As far as the definition of a group is concerned, there could potentially be several identity elements in any given group. However, all textbooks, of course, immediately proceed to show that the identity element of a group is unique. Other group axioms imply that the identity element must be unique. 
These textbook authors, they could have made life easier for themselves by simply making the uniqueness of the identity element part of the definition of a group. Then they wouldn't need to prove it as a separate theorem. But it's always better to keep definitions and axioms as simple and minimalistic as possible. For instance, in order to minimize the risk of inconsistency, or because proving properties instead of gratuitously including them in the definition illuminates fundamental relationships. Note, though, that you cannot infer from this that the uniqueness of the identity element in a group is somehow secondary or less embraced aspect of the group concept. It is proven as a theorem rather than included in the definition, solely because of the technical possibility of doing so, not because it was seen as less essential than the definitional group properties. You can't use this to infer that the fundamental conception of a group that mathematicians have in mind is ambivalent with regard to the uniqueness of the identity. On the contrary, it's arguably the uniqueness of identity is a core aspect of the intuitive notion of group, which has in itself no less of a claim to being fundamental than the definitional properties. But it's just that if one tries to find the smallest set of key properties of a group to take as definitional, then one finds that uniqueness of the identity is a property that can be most efficiently turned into a theorem for the sake of minimization of the definitional uh, assumptions. In the same way, you can argue that Proposition 2 of the Elements doesn't show that Euclid's fundamental notion of the circle drawing constructions and postulates were divorced from a physical compass. It does not prove this any more than a modern textbook proves that the uniqueness of the identity is fundamentally divorced from the group concept. Just as a modern algebra textbook would have nothing a priori against including uniqueness of the identity in the definition of a group, so also Euclid may very well have had nothing a priori against assuming a non-collapsible ruler, but just as a modern algebra textbook nevertheless arrives at the conclusion that, well, it's better to make the uniqueness of the identity into a theorem, because that enables the minimization of the definitional properties overall, so also Euclid may very well have decided to assume only a non-collapsible ruler purely for reasons of axiomatic minimalism. And if so, it would be a mistake to infer from this proposition that he didn't care about physical tools like the compass. So, okay, I, I used the example from group theory there. If you're not familiar with group theory, I'm sure you have encountered similar aesthetic in other places. For instance... Here's a non-mathematical example. Some people, when they cook pasta, they save a few spoonfuls of the cooking water and they toss it into the dish. That makes the, the pasta less dry. I always thought it was a little pretentious when TV chefs do this. Obviously, you could achieve the same results in other ways. So instead of adding some of the cooking water, you could add a little water, whatever water from the tap or oil or something, make your sauce a bit runny or whatever. There I'm sure nobody could tell the difference if you used actual cooking water versus if you just uh, toss in the same amount of water straight from the tap. But it's cool somehow to use the actual cooking water. It makes you feel uh, creative, spontaneous. It's almost spiritual, like you're in sync with the universe, like some ancient Indian who lived in harmony with the land, making use of everything, every part of the pig, even the cooking water. It takes skill, a true understanding to use things for something other than their intended purpose. It's a really a rock and roll move. Anybody can cook the way it says on the tin, but I'm such a creative rebel that I use the very cooking water itself to make the, the sauce uh, less dry. Well, Euclid's proposition too is a bit like that. 
Of course, you could accept the transfer lengths as a separate assumption or as something implied by the compass, but it's cooler if you can do without it and instead use only what is already at hand in unexpected new ways. Euclid uses the cooking water, so to speak. He uses the assumptions from the postulate that were already necessary anyway. By cleverly combining these, he shows that you don't need anything else. It's satisfying in the same way that the pasta trick is satisfying. I think this is enough to explain why Euclid wanted to include Proposition 2. So we do not need to attribute to Euclid any anti-compass agenda. It's enough that he thought it was a cool trick, that he could circumvent the assumption of the compass as a length transferer by reducing it to other prior assumptions. So the question is still open then, whether Euclid meant his postulates to correspond to ruler and compass or not. We will have to keep reading Euclid to find out more. Thank you.